From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we look at violence in our communities and trace the roots of that violence through economic despair and rage with our guest, Dr. E.L. Cornegay, founder of the Baldwin Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. E.L. Cornegay. He's the Dean of Continuing Education and Professional Development at the Joseph Business School in Forest Park, Illinois. In 2013, Dr. Cornegay founded the Baldwin Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to promote anti-violence awareness and violence prevention through teaching successful critical thinking strategies. He received his Ph.D. from Chicago Theological Seminary, where he has also served as an adjunct professor, teaching courses in Christian ethics and the works of James Baldwin. He's the author of the recent book, A Queering of Black Theology, James Baldwin's Blues Project and Gospel Prose, published by Paul Grave in 2013. Dr. E.L. Cornegay, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're having this conversation today in Chicago, Illinois, and Chicago is infamous for both, I guess, violence in the historic setting of, of we think about the gangs and Al Capone, mm-hmm. but also any time that, that I turn on the television, for example, just the other night on The Daily Show, uh, Chicago was called out for the violence on the streets. And so I guess when we say that Chicago is a violent city, what are we actually talking about? And what sort of specific types of violence are we talking about in 2015? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good question. And... Um there are, are so many different layers to it that uh, it's it's easier for me to at least begin the conversation of around violence with thinking about rage in particular um, and seeing uh, violence as an outcome of rage, but rage not necessarily a form of violence. Uh, one of the things that I talked about uh, early on with the creation of the Baldwin Delaney Institute is the idea that that rage is a creative energy. One of the things that James Baldwin talks about, who is a, an interlocutor of my own, uh, and the, the Institute is founded on this relationship between him and uh, Beaufort Delaney, who was his um, uh, mentor, is that he saw rage as a, as a creative source. Instead of creating violent images and violent actions out of it, he began to create beautiful and wonderful art. And so I look at... Uh, if you will, say Genesis 1, where God is uh, forming, if you will, the universe. And he looks out on the chaos and he says, let there be light. I think that's the moment where rage is turned into something that is creative and beautiful. And I think that we have that same energy inside of us to look out on the world and say, let there be light, as opposed to buying into the con- uh, the chaos and continuing the violence there is. So when we use this term rage, help us to define that, because we could talk about you've already begun to differentiate rage from violence Mm -hmm. and say that rage is a more creative force. But when we're talking about rage, are we talking about anger or is this a shade beyond anger or kind of how do we define rage as a concept? I'm defining rage as as a creative energy, a creational source that we all have within us. Um, How we respond uh, is the critical uh, moment uh, that... um, produces the outcome. Either we respond via rage uh, in terms of violence or we respond via rage in terms of something that's constructive. So we have the capacity for the destructive or the constructive. And I think that rage is the site that allows for that. So if you think of that in the, the core of our DNA is the capacity for creation. And so understanding rage boiling up in us is the determinant uh, the outcome of that rage is determined is determined by the actions that we either 
deem as violent or the actions that we uh, deem as uh, uh, constructive. What I'm hearing you saying is that rage is largely a neutral force and that when the rage is there, the rage is there because that's kind of part of how we're constructed. We're we're constructed to to react in passionate ways. Is passionate a, a, a word that we could use here? I, I think uh, passionate is a, a good word to use. Um, but a better term, I think, is um, potential. Okay. So we're we're locked into this notion of potential, and in the face of of adversity, we either react with violence or react with what would be the opposite of violence? Mm-hmm. Constructive action? Would it be ordering as opposed to disordering? How would you how would you characterize that other response that that pulls away from violence and moves towards the the genesis uh, that hmm. you mentioned before. I like that. <laughs> um, and that's a good question. I think that there are a multitude of responses um, that can come from the potential of rage. Uh, and one might be to turn away from it. One might be to be shocked by it. Another might be to, to want to engage it um, and produce more violence. Another might be to to resist it in some some way. Another might be just to to talk about it and to analyze it. And so there are all of the I think there's a myriad way, myriad ways in which we respond to to the potential that we have inside of us relative to what we understand as rage. But it is the the circumstances, I think, that the circumstances that we're born into, the circumstances that we um, that form our traditions, the circumstances that that form the habits around our our decision making processes that determine how we respond to rage when we see it. Um, and the thing about it is that it's everywhere. You can't move away from it. I think, you know, I was thinking about it on the way in. There may not be rage on my particular street or violence on the particular street that I live on. However, uh, I'm intersecting violence all the time. Wherever I might be, the outcomes of rage are, are, are there. But how we see ourselves in the context of of this kind of chaos that's being presented to us uh, determines how we're going to respond, whether violently or creatively. And so that rage can can lead to a a constructive response that brings a community together. And so, what would be what would be an example of that in real time? Uh, I could think of the responses to the events in Ferguson and New York City, the mm-hmm. massive protests, where people, I would imagine, by your definition, are enraged, but they aren't necessarily going out and committing further violence. They're going out and they're they are agitating for notice and for for some sort of civic action. Am I hearing you correctly? I think that that's one aspect of it. I, I don't I don't necessarily come to this conversation saying that I have all the answers. Um, but having an, uh, an opportunity to hear different perspectives and to engage in, in, that, in this kind of conversation, um, I think when we look at the youth uh, today, and I think it is a youth movement as we see it worldwide uh, occurring um, and different responses to rage, um, we can see them from, from Paris to Ferguson and everything in between that um, there is a break in tradition and a reforming of tradition. And I think uh, that oftentimes uh, much of our psyche has been formed uh, in response and in relation to uh, different forms of violence. It has become um, a medium through which we express ourselves. And so our greatest passions are oftentimes aligned to some kind of violence, whether that's state apportioned violence or domestic violence, um, uh, violence on behalf of the republic. We respond to the chaos with our potential by by being complicit oftentimes um, uh, with regards to how we pour our energies into violent actions and, and begin to talk about them in terms of how we can validate some violence or one violence over the other. But that complicity, I think, is, a, is one of potential. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. E.L. Cornegay, founder and director of the Baldwin Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing. We're discussing strategies to understand and reduce violence in our cities and in ourselves. Well, we spent a few moments talking about this concept of rage, and I, I have to say that when I came into this conversation, I think I had a certain idea of what the word rage meant. 
and you've really begun to open up a spectrum for me of understanding, I think I would have collapsed rage and violence much more closely together. But so now let's let's take a, a slightly different approach, and and this this term that you've just used and that is is built into the curriculum that you helped to develop, this notion of anti-violence. When we're talking about that, what are we talking about as a concept? What does anti-violence mean? Hmm. Um, I would have to say for for myself, uh, what I have tried to do, or what I am doing, is not necessarily anti-violence, but violence eradication. Um, I think that anti-violence, um, uh, to me, is more of a rhetorical trope that doesn't necessarily um, engage the issue of violence in a way that uh, does away with it. In fact, I think that the potential uh, does more to maintain violence. Uh, violence becomes a commodity, if you will, um, where folk are more apt to find programs to to talk about violence, to engage youth around issues of violence, but not necessarily give them the tools to eradicate it in their lives. When we when we talk about the eradication of violence, mm-hmm. in your take on that, when when we talk about violence and violence eradication, in your view, is it simply a negative, always a negative? Mm-hmm. Or is there ever a, a case where actions that we can classify as violent would be justified in some way. Mm. Well, when I when I if I'm going to engage that correctly, I think the next move for me would be to say that if we take one case and say here in Chicago, youth violence. I say that it isn't youth violence, but it's violence against youth. But that violence against youth is is just an outcome of, say, poverty. And so uh, where poverty is the strong man, you know, violence is its minion, if you will. And and so violence becomes an economic choice, if you will. Uh, I think that that it be, that, that there is a direct connection between violence and and poverty. And so we get lost in the conversation around violence. Uh, so much so that we never really look at its source, which I think is poverty. And so over the years that I've worked with youth um, and I've worked with youth who were whose gifts had been identified and they were uh, in, say, a college going track. And I've worked with youth who um, still had gifts, but they had yet to be identified. But but that potential was still there. and You could see it in their eyes and you could see that they wanted in some way to be able to take that potential and, and push it into a, a positive avenue. Uh, they're both uh, impacted by poverty, and the outcome of that impact is violence. So whether they are very gifted and, and those gifts being identified or gifted and those gifts not being identified, they all experienced violence related to poverty. I think that that becomes the issue. I think that poverty is the problem. And the violence is the outcome of that. And so poverty um, in between the two of those, if there's a signification to be had, is that potential has leaned more towards violence as opposed to the potential leaning more towards uh, more towards the act of violence and, and less towards the eradication of poverty. So to eradicate the violence, we have to eradicate the poverty. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. E.L. Cornegay, founder and director of the Baldwin-Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing. We're discussing strategies to understand and reduce violence in our cities and in ourselves. We'll be back in a moment. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Dr. E.L. Cornegay, founder and director of the Baldwin-Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing. We're discussing strategies to understand and reduce violence in our cities and in ourselves. Two things that you've brought out I think are very important. And the first that I, I, I just want to flag here is that I appreciate that this is a that this is a, a subject that we want to speak about very carefully. Mm-hmm. And that too often people speak quickly and let's just name it for what it is. I'm a I'm a white man asking you as an African American questions about violence. There is a lot that is around this room 
that we want to be careful about. Absolutely. And I, I don't want to, to uh, be deploying categories that box you into a corner. I want to be very uh, appreciative of the fact that you are trying to speak with care. Mm-hmm. You also have, have noted something that I think is very important, and that is that um, when we talk about youth violence, for example, to take your example, we are freezing the conversation at a certain point in the film. And we, if we rolled the film back, we would see that what we're focusing on when the news camera is turned on youth violence is the result of a series of steps mm-hmm. that have led to this moment. They, they are not... Um, it's not that youth violence just suddenly erupts, but rather, if I'm hearing you correctly, this is the result of a systemic sort of violence that's been done to this community that we haven't noticed and haven't noticed until it erupts and then we, the media, et cetera, gets the the, uh, the outlet of being able to say, oh, look at those wild youth or whatever. And first of all, before I proceed, I just want to make sure, have I heard you correctly on that point? Uh, I I think broadly. Okay. Yes. Well, and please at any point sort of correct where 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 this is going. So so if I'm hearing you correctly, when when we're talking about violence, we're rarely talking about individual action in in your definition. Are we instead talking about a more systemic and community-wide set of pressures that is placed upon a population? Absolutely. In fact, I was having this conversation with uh, Reverend Osajifu Yuhuru Seku this morning. He's in town um, to teach uh, a course uh, on anti-violence. And he's been on the ground organizing in Ferguson and in New York and in Boston with youth. And um, uh, so uh, he was there in the early days uh, right after um, the death of Mike Brown um, and uh, on site on ground in time. Uh, when the violence erupted, when um, the policeman, uh, the Ferguson policeman, was uh, 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 exonerated uh, uh, by the grand jury. And I asked him that question uh, about uh, economics and, and violence. And, and he, he said that, yes, they, they are connected. Uh, but uh, he also said that even if those things, even if there is a... Um, say, an intercultural um, renaissance and businesses come back to the black community, there might be a drop in violence, but it won't do away with state violence. Um, and so it's, it's, but I think it's a start. I think that when I look at the youth, one of the things that I, I found out about youth programming is that there was always an issue with the parents. The issue with the parents was an economic one. Could they afford to have their children in the program? Could they uh, could they actually participate at a high level in terms of being active and um, in their support as adults in the program? And so I found that youth programming is is successful only the, to the degree to which you're able to impact the families. You can have a great youth program, but the youth still have to go home. They still have to go back into those communities. And so there is still a process, an economic process with which they have to deal with. And it puts them at risk. Um, it say if a family is able to do things for their child and they send their child out into the community, still that child might be is still subject to the violence, uh, subject to uh, the possibility of of some kind of economic choice that their parents made or did not make to put them in a position where they are subject to um, either to some level of violence, whether that's getting it, getting things on their own or 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 being um, being put in a compromising position because they do have ownership of things that some other youth or young adult or adult does not have. So it's broader in scope than I think than what we talk about when we say violence. And I think that rage and this is this is why rage is important for me um, with Baldwin, I I think, who came out of it, if I should maybe say a little bit more for just for the audience uh, about James Baldwin, who who is a um, was a prolific essayist and um, uh, an author um, whose um, work, The Fire Next Time, uh, really informed much. I think I say much of the rhetoric 
and determinations relative to to race consciousness uh, in um, in the early 60s. In fact, I would go as far as to say uh, that um, uh, Martin Luther King had a copy of The Fire Next Time when he was sitting in the Birmingham jail and he penned a letter from a Birmingham jail. I think it was a conversation uh, that um, or a letter that was a response to Baldwin's call in charge of the church uh, and of race relations uh, that you find uh, in um, um, a letter from a region in my mind, which is one of the um, essays that comprise the fire next time. And it was produced uh, or it was uh, released prior to um, a letter from a Birmingham jail. So I think that they are in conversation with one another. One of the things that James Baldwin talks about, about rage, is that it goes unexamined. And because of its unexamination, it being left unexamined, we never really talk about, I think, the the potential, rage as potential. And so we just accept violence oftentimes as as an outcome, uh, as a as a last resort, as a natural process that that is the expression of um, our potential. That's the easiest, I think, and most attainable uh, resource that we have to talk about something that we don't have or think we don't have. But we do have the potential. But if that potential is not given an out uh, um, uh, an outlet you know, and those that's one of the things I think that youth programs are doing is trying to find outlets for that potential. Um, but how far does that go? And that's uh, one of the things or at least a, I think an open ended question that I'm asking there. And so that would be an investment in in the I guess the hopeful approach, an investment and a trust in in the potential. And this gets back to your earlier use of this notion of, of potential. So in communities where there are there are people who are caught up in rage, there's potential for that rage to be put into very good uses and not just violent outcomes if they're given the support, the opportunity, and the economic base. Am I hearing that correctly? I, 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 I'm saying that, yes. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Dr. E.L. Cornegay, founder and director of the Baldwin Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing. We're discussing strategies to understand and reduce violence in our cities and in ourselves. You're listening to Things Not Seen. At a couple points in this conversation, you've used a term that I want to examine. Uh, you've used this term of the strong man. And I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's a, it's a term from the Gospels. Is that correct? Absolutely. So could you tell us sort of how this notion of the strong man First of all, what's the story that you're drawing that term from, and, and how does that sort of fit into what we're talking about? Um, well, I do have my Bible with me. I carry it with me everywhere. Um, and uh, in my faith, I am a, a, a Christian uh, and um, do believe in the power of faith and belief. In fact, faith and belief um, uh, comprise the fulcrum with which I do all of my work. Um, and so it comes directly out of the Mark and text where Jesus is talking about binding the strong man. You can't take his house until you bind him. The Gospel of Mark in chapter 3, the scribe said to Jesus he was performing his miracles uh, under the name of Beelzebub and or Satan. And he said, uh, and he called to them unto him and said uh, unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And just going down to verse 327, um, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. And so when I when I when I read that, um, you know, that's uh, also uh, Chad Myers does a, a big piece on a whole book on uh, or maybe two about binding the strong man. And so when when you're using this term, when we're talking about uh, situations and in a particular situation, you say, well, in this particular case, poverty is the strong man. Yes. That is the entity that needs to be bound and subdued in order for real change to happen. Exactly. When when we examine rage, I think that what we find is the strong man of poverty behind it. Um, James Baldwin, who grew up in in poverty in in Harlem, um, you know, at the towards the end of the Renaissance. But he had he saw that Renaissance movement. Right. 
but he lived on the other end of Park Avenue, as he talks about it, and uh, the uptown end. <laughs> and so um, um, as a young black poor boy, he um, understood rage, um, uh, economic rage that was was part of the condition that he was in, how to respond to it. So when you look at his work like um, Go Tell It on the Mountain, which is kind of emancipatory text for him, um, and a, a collection of essays that, that he put together uh, uh, in um, um, Notes uh, from a Native Son and then The Fire Next Time, kind of comprise, I, I think, what uh, is the the locus of his response to the rage uh, for himself. He, In fact, he talks about having to write about himself before he can write about anything else. And I think that that unlocked uh, a lot for him. But what gets lost, I think, in Baldwin's work is is his call um, to examine rage and the site and sources of rage, which really are predicated on identity for him. And I think that when we look at the identity in relation to the violence, it always gets framed in that context. Uh, black youth violence uh, in this particular instance, right, uh, um, or racial violence or gender violence, you know, a sexual orientation violence. However you want to coin it, there is a violence that can be attached to it. Um, and so this is one of the things that I think uh, uh, when I read Mark 3, that this is what it's getting at, is that we once we examine rage, we the, the veil is torn and what's behind it uh, is poverty. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. We're speaking today to Dr. E.L. Cornegay, founder and director of the Baldwin-Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing. We're discussing strategies to understand and reduce violence in our cities and in ourselves. You're listening to Things Not Seen. You also used a, a phrase uh, a few minutes ago that I, I want to circle back around and ask about, and, and it's this notion of the commodification of violence. First of all, when we're talking about commodification, what are we meaning by that term? Um, that it becomes a source. Um, violence is monetized. Monetized in the sense of there are there are organizations that make money off of the perpetuation of violence, or in what way is violence monetized? I would say yes to that. Oh. You know, um, forgive me, um, but it's already on tape, right? But I would say I would say yes to that. But I I, I don't I'm not I'm not. I'm not saying I'm not putting it. Uh, I don't want it to be um, seen in a uh, in a pejorative light. I want it to be seen in 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 a light. Let's to be self reflective on it. Um, uh, yes, there's folk that are doing great work that are volunteers. Uh, there's organizations that are are doing great work. There's but there's there's tons of money out there um, that people are using to do this work uh, but the return on it is what's in question for me you know um, year after year grant after grant um, there might be one in five one in ten the numbers might even be more in terms of the percentages the very small percentages of lives that are turned around you know I was in a conversation back uh uh, early part of last year and there was a young man in East Garfield who'd been coming to um, um, a what I call a capacity uh, um, violence eradication program that I was doing at First Church of the Brethren uh, where um, Reverend LaDonna Sanders is the, the pastor there. They have a long history of, uh, of uh, uh, justice work here in the city. Dr. King had an office there uh, back when he was here in the city uh, during the civil rights movement. And um, this brother said that uh, he just it's like he couldn't help himself. And he shouted out to this young man um, who was a good young man um, um, doing well in his in his studies. And he's staying out of trouble and he takes care of himself and his and his younger siblings. But he said, you know. You only have a one in nine chance to get out of here. And I said, don't listen to him. I said, you don't have a one in nine chance. You're the one that's going to get the other nine to bring them out. 
it's a completely different perspective. And I think that there needs to be a completely different perspective, an overhaul of how we treat anti-violence and anti-violence youth programs. And I think it takes this this kind of an examination. I think the dollars need to be reoriented towards something that is more productive, that takes into account um, the potential of youth um, and the understanding of rage, not as violence, but as an outcome uh, that is related to some economic choice or economic condition. Let me let me then reflect this back and see if I've, I've understood correctly. So we can agree that it's a social good that there is a news organization. But oftentimes when violence erupts, a news organization will say, oh, this is great. We're going to get eyeballs on the screen. Mm. And so they, they see violence flourishing and they it's almost like they want to hone in on the worst parts of it so that they get more viewers. And then we if I'm if I can extend that when we look at programs, programs also can get swept up in the focusing on the worst aspects, the mm-hmm. one in nine that you mentioned uh, as a way of of. Well, certainly that drives donor dollars uh, if you if you if you characterize the problem as ferocious and what gets lost in that, if I'm hearing you correctly, both with the news reportage and also with the approaches of these various organizations that are that are ostensibly trying to stop violence, what gets lost in that is hope. Have I heard you correctly? Mm-hmm. The hope uh, in terms of... Well, at that moment when you said, no, no, you're the one in the nine that's going to bring that other nine out of here, that was what I would characterize as a very hopeful and hope-filled statement as yes. opposed to a hopeless statement. Absolutely. So am I hearing that distinction correctly, that, that when we talk about the commodification of violence... We're talking about turning violence into a profit center and losing hope as the real profit center. And I'm using profit in both P-R-O-F-I-T, but also with the P-H-E-T uh, <laughs> as a way of giving us vision mm. to, to see a, a mm. better a better community. Mm. Really? And in, in, in Isaiah 48, you know, there's the verse that it's the Lord that teaches us to profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, and leads us in the way that we should go. And even if we think about that statement, right, um, in that one in nine, um, how much, how, what kind of investment would that turn into if we took that one and gave that one the capacity to bring in the other nine, as opposed to um, spending so much time on the nine, or not spending so much time, but spending the dollars on the nine with trying to, um, what if we took all of that money um, or that a portion of that and began to to look at ways to take and to produce one person that could give the other nine a job. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. E.L. Cornegay, founder and director of the Baldwin Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing. We're discussing strategies to understand and reduce violence in our cities and in ourselves. We'll be back in a moment. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Dr. E.L. Cornegay, founder and director of the Baldwin Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing. We're discussing strategies to understand and reduce violence in our cities and in ourselves. Dr. Cornegay, what got you involved in this kind of work? <laughs> wow, I don't know if we have enough time to to talk about that but um uh, once i um completed the the phd i I was at a crossroads and um heard a call or another aspect of the call that i was all that i have already been in for a number of years which was okay now what are you going to do with what you have what are you going to do with it Am I going to teach folk how to be scholars or am I going to take my scholarship and teach folk how to thrive? And specifically at Chicago Theological Seminary, your Ph.D. was in what subject? Uh, theology, ethics. Okay. And ethics, yes. So applying the the wisdom of the Christian tradition and the Bible towards better moral decisions. Yes, okay. yes, yes. And and am I hearing in, in your response that you, in, in discerning this call, you made the decision not to simply go and teach other people to be scholars, but instead to, to apply what you had learned in everyday situations. I think the, the right thing for me to say here is that I didn't have a choice. I think that I'm made to do what I do. 
my potential is is actually being manifested now in the work that I do and in the things that I see. And so it was a natural progression. The door that opened for me is the one that I walk through. And my concern for youth is is something that at first I didn't necessarily recognize. I wondered aloud why why I was thrown down amidst of, you know, 14 and 15 year olds because I didn't think that youth I had an anthropomorphic view, uh, view of youth and I was working with youth, which I think happens oftentimes <laughs> uh, with folk who do work for youth. And I have to say when you use this term anthropomorphic, what does that mean? For me, it meant that um, I had predetermined that they were already bad, <laughs> that they wouldn't listen, uh, that it was a waste of time. Um, you know, all of the kinds of things that we might uh, push on youth just because we see them with their pants sagging or uh, into their their phones and technology and those kinds of things. Um, But for me, when I began to understand that the love that I showed somebody else's child, that someone I was sowing a seed for my own children, that someone would love and show my children uh, love, it started to shift in the um, something opened up in me, in my spirit and in my potential, where I began to connect with youth in a very powerful way. Um, and it also helped to heal my own wounds from when, say, I was 15, 14 and 15, living with things that I had lived with for a long time, fixed psychic points in my own, what I call the DNA of my thinking, where I had been raced and I had been sexualized, uh, where I'd been turned into someone that was struggling with with all of the all of the things that you struggle with with trying to become someone um, I was able to share that and connect with them in that way and to bring all of the training and understanding and, and learning that I had experienced at Chicago Theological Seminary uh, over the years and and what the professors had poured into me it, it turned it into something that was very tangible more than just uh, an essay or a book but into me actually putting my hands uh, on the plow, if you will, or being in the presence of youth and seeing healing occurring um, um, within their own souls and spirits. When you experienced that opening and you, you were able to get past that initial surface anger reaction towards the work that you were doing, what were some of the problems that you discovered that are actually there in in youth today? What what are they really struggling with? You mentioned sagging pants and being in their phones. Well, when we're really talking about problems that are affecting youth today that that can lead in negative outlets to violence or hopefully can be turned to, to more positive outcomes, what are we really concretely talking about? Well, I, I call it critical decision-making. Mm. Um, you can have um, a straight-A student um, who wants to fit in, and so they they take their potential and their gift and they will mute it so that they fit in. And by fitting in, it might put them in a position where they make a, a critical decision. They make a decision that will transform their lives. So they they, they might go from uh, being someone who's on their way to college to someone who, and this is a you know kind of a drastic dichotomy here, that someone who might be up uh, for uh, you know a, a capital a capital case just based on uh, uh, one decision um, that um, is is tied to a lack of understanding of the potential that they have um, and the identity that's associated with it. And so what I say, what I'm saying here is that I think that our youth have not had an opportunity to really understand what their God-given identity is. And I think that God-given identity is the one um, that taps us into the God potential that we see in Genesis 1 so when we look out on the chaos, instead of us saying, let's let there be violence or I'm going to run from violence, I can say, let there be light. And the potential will create a change, not in my own, not just in my own life, but in my family and in my com- community that the world has never seen before. And so um, that's where I am now, even in my own life, is understanding that I have said uh, in my own life and faith and belief and Christian walk, let there be light. And so watch out, strong man. (laughs) This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. 
We're speaking today with Dr. E.L. Cornegay, founder and director of the Baldwin-Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing. We're discussing strategies to understand and reduce violence in our cities and in ourselves. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is a weekly interview program that explores the intersection of culture and faith. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at NotSeenRadio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dolt Radio. And thank you always for listening. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Dr. E.L. Cornegay, founder and director of the Baldwin-Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing. We're discussing strategies to understand and reduce violence in our cities and in ourselves. Students, you know, students in certain neighborhoods are going to go to college naturally. Mm -hmm. Students in other neighborhoods, there are going to be traps set for them so that even if they're college-bound, as you said there's a possibility for whatever reason that they could end up in a capital murder charge mm. and that, that strong dichotomy that you, you laid out. When we look at situations of rage where there's the potential to shift to violence or to shift to constructive potential, the individual heart has to change. Somebody has to reach out and be able to, to show that person, the I guess if I can use biblical language, the way that God sees that person. Yes. But there also that can't just be an individual heart changing. There also has to be an attention to the community structures and pressures. So it's a it's a both and. So that must be exhausting. How do you work both at the same time and keep yourself able to do the work? Hmm. Well, I I, I think that uh, um, the the model is a uh, is is one that uh, um, Jesus gives us right. Where, wherein he says that it's not me doing the work, it's the Father in me that does the work. And I would say that same thing, is that um, even now in, in the position that I'm in, I'm in as the Dean for Continuing Ed and Professional Development at the Joseph Business School, it's not me that's doing the work, it's the Father in me that's doing the work. And so um, this is spiritual work. And I think the things that when we look out on the chaos and we see the level of chaos, uh, the the the, the the potential that this chaos is producing that we know that we can't do it on our own, but we have to understand that there's a potential inside us. If we see it, if, if, if there's something that we see, then there's something that we're called to. And so if we're called to it, it won't be me that's doing the work. It's the father in me that's doing it. It's not just enough to teach people how to read and write, but you have to give them the indispensable skills in order to, to, to thrive. Um, and so, you know, it's about, putting together programming um, that um, gives folk the opportunity uh, to do that. And I believe that if you put it together, then there, if, if, if the program is in me, then the people are in me as well. And so it's, it's, it's not about me doing it. It's about me relying on, on faith and belief to manifest those very things that are in me that I see have the capacity to be brought into the world. People who have been in in situations of trauma come away with both post traumatic stress disorder mm. and also moral injury. This notion that their their whole sense of right and wrong is cast into disarray. Mm. I imagine that when we're talking about youth that have grown up in situations of economic and structural violence, we're talking about populations where PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, and moral injury are at very high levels. Mm -hmm. And so we aren't just talking about uh, giving better choices and opportunities, but we're talking about undoing a structure of damage. Um, what what sort of resources and tools have you developed that help to undo that damage to thinking that's been affected by PTSD and moral injury? Mm. For a long time in my life, I used 
I read the Bible through the lens of theology. Um, but then I began, there was a, a drastic shift, a turn, a repentance, if you will, <laughs> uh, where I began to read um, theology through the lens of the Bible. And I'm um, radical enough to believe, and I have radical friends, right? <laughs> I'm radical enough to believe that the Bible is the only book that I need um, to make a difference. I think that this is the original success book and I'm radical enough to believe it um, uh, and to believe that the potential in that book uh, is true. Uh, I, I liken it to this, right? Uh, everyone has read, uh, say, uh, Little Red Riding Hood. And we know that she's going to meet the, the, the wolf in the forest. She's on her way to grandma's house. We know how the story ends. And no matter when you encounter that book, the outcome is always the same. And so I'm saying that for this book, no matter when you encounter it, the outcome is always the same. So the potential for the outcome is something that I'm believing in uh, will make the difference. It's not for me to take this and browbeat anyone in it. It's for me to understand what I'm called to do based on this and to manifest something um, that reflects the outcome uh, that I believe is in this book. Um, and so the, the idea becomes one where I'm replacing, say, the DNA of my thinking with the DNA of God so that the potential that God has placed in me, I'm able to access. If I'm hearing you correctly, then when you when you're dealing with populations that are that are affected by P uh, PTSD and mm -hmm. by moral injury, one of the answers is to reroute them to this core story about God's providence in the world, God's caring love in the world. Mm -hmm. Am I hearing that correctly? Those those things, and to, uh, also, I mean, another part of that is I, I love the the uh, I love uh, to talk uh, about DNA. I don't know a whole lot about it, but um, but then there's also this other interesting uh, aspect that scientists have found, and that's called uh, epigenetics. Uh, but the epigenetics is like uh, a film. It doesn't it doesn't um, restructure or um, uh, reconfigure the DNA, but it lays over a top of it. And so the DNA is impacted by this, this social economic trauma, if you will, that overlies the DNA. And so the decision-making or the DNA responds to it. And so we become uh, products of that epigenetic layer. And so the potential within our DNA never actually breaks through the light never comes through if you will or it's um it's um it's filtered through this epigenetic layer so the potential can be there in the code but the context the circumstances can bury that potential and part of the work that i hear you saying that you're doing is to help to repair that basic code so it can flourish and as to use your phrase the light can break through yes yes um and when I leave here, I have to go back. I'm creating a program uh, that um, speaks to the economic condition. I think that we're at a point where we've tried, um, where, where theory has met its limits. And so as long as I rely on the Holy Spirit to do it, because one of the things I said early on in the conversation is that faith and belief are, are the fulcrum that I use to, to, to manifest the things that are in me to do. Um, and so, you know, I'm, but I think that it's time for a practical um, faith movement um, that takes uh, the gospel um, at its truth. Call me crazy, right? <laughs> but I, I think that at its bare truth and believes in it. And I think we've seen that more than once in our in our in, you know, in our world. But to take that and to to say, OK, every, nothing else works. Let's go back to what what might work or what does work uh, and, and use, use these principles uh, to, to, to try to begin to make differences in people's lives. Dr. E.L. Cornegay, thank you for being with us. I've really enjoyed our conversation and thank you especially for the work that you're doing to help heal the roots of violence. Amen.
We've been speaking today to uh, Dr. E.L. Cornegay. He's the Dean of Continuing Education and Professional Development at the Joseph Business School in Forest Park, Illinois. In 2013, Dr. Cornegay founded the Baldwin Delaney Institute for Academic Enrichment and Faith Flourishing, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to promote anti-violence awareness and violence prevention through teaching successful critical thinking strategies. He received his Ph.D. from Chicago Theological Seminary, where he's also served as an adjunct professor, teaching courses on Christian ethics and the works of James Baldwin. He's the author of the recent book, A Queering of Black Theology, James Baldwin's Blues Project and Gospel Prose, published by Paul Grave in 2013. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios, overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.